0: Hello, and welcome to Calming the Chaos Podcast, where we talk with people around the world who can help you find peace in a chaotic world. I'm your host, Tracy Canella, licensed mental health counselor, certified eating disorder specialist, and advanced clinical hypnotherapist. Calming the Chaos Podcast is for those who want self-help resources and education. It's not a substitute for counseling or psychotherapy. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. And now, let the chaos begin. In this episode of Calming the Chaos, I am going to be talking with a colleague of mine and her name is Katie Lear. She's in North Carolina and she is actually wanting to talk about the fears that she has about treating eating disorders. And of course, I'm very interested in hearing about them because I'm a person who's trying to recruit people to want to work with eating disorders. Uh, Through the pandemic, we've had a lot of people who are struggling even more with food, eating, uh, body image, all of that stuff. And so Katie uh, is a licensed clinical mental health counselor and she's also a registered drama therapist and a play therapist. And Katie is also an avid Dungeons and Dragons player, fan and she integrates Dungeons and Dragons in her work with adolescents and so here I will just bring her up on screen. Here I would like to uh, introduce you to Katie Lear where we're going to have a discussion about
1: eating disorders. Welcome Katie. Hey Tracy thank you so much for having me on. I'm very excited to talk about this and I'm also genuinely very curious to hear Your wisdom around eating disorders. It's an area that I've thought about a lot.
0: It does come up in practice, doesn't it? Sometimes you'll be working with somebody and then they'll have a food, eating or body image related issue. And then most therapists say, oh, you got to go see a specialist or I can't handle this. And so we're going to go through some of your fears and some of your uh, concerns about that. And I would love for therapists to listen to you and to also listen to me try and calm the chaos of being a therapist and having a person uh, present with an eating disorder in in your therapy practice. So let's just hear a little bit about yourself first. Can you just let us know about you, who you are, and how you got started doing the
1: work that you do? Absolutely. Yeah, I am a counselor and a play therapist based in North Carolina, where I work mostly with... Tweens these days who have anxiety and anxiety with some OCD features. So I find increasingly I'm moving in that direction of intrusive thoughts, obsessions and compulsions, like that kind of flavor of anxiety and OCD. Uh, And I'm probably gravitating toward that because I was a lot like my clients at this age. I was diagnosed with OCD pretty young. And when I went to therapy school and started learning about, approaches like ERP that are designed for OCD, I thought, man, where was this stuff when I was a kid, right? Right. Like, why? This makes so much sense. Why did nobody tell us? And I had very attentive parents who had worked very hard to, to keep me in therapy and to look for good people. And it just wasn't accessible back in the 90s, -hmm. the way that it is now. So,
0: yeah, you know, I hear about
1: that because I
0: don't even know about it. I'm a therapist. I don't specialize in in OCD, but I would love to hear a little bit about that as well. And it sounds like it's the same with me in eating disorders. I've Mm -hmm. had an eating disorder. And Mm -hmm. where were all of these treatments when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s? Right. And yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. And I I do think that there's a decent amount of overlap between those two communities. I know that disordered eating is a common kind of comorbidity, right? Like a common Mm -hmm. overlap for folks who have OCD. So I know even in my relatively short experience as a therapist, treating kids with these conditions, I, I have seen that overlap come up. And it has been a challenge for me in my practice where you've got a relationship with this person, but you also know that they need expertise that I may not have, right?
0: Well, and maybe the therapy that you just mentioned could be useful for eating disorders as well. And you may more be more equipped to treat them than you already know. Because see, even right now, you know something that I don't. You know a therapy that I don't. And it could actually help treat mm-hmm. eating disorders. Who knows? I'll have to listen yeah. to what you have to say. And I'm sure organically it'll come up during the conversation yeah. as well. And so then you also have uh, some other things that you, I didn't yes. mention. Uh, one of the things that you have told me is that you have a book and I did tell the audience that you're a D&D Dungeons yeah. and Dragons player and fan. So uh, could you speak to that a little bit too?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I've kind of come into this world of play and drama therapy by way of theater. I was a theater major in undergrad. That was a real lifeline for me growing up and, I have really gravitated toward Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games in general over the last few years as a way to kind of bring that theater, narrative, storytelling, role-play experience that I know can be so helpful for young people into a platform that is comfortable and safe and accessible for them. I think a lot about meeting people where they're at and finding ways to play even as we get older, right? And I think there's something about D&D that's so fantastic because it's got this structure and this complexity to it that makes older kids and teens and maybe even adults feel comfortable playing. And it mm-hmm. translates so well online that it's, it's a way that people can feel like they're having a genuine connection with each other despite being in different places. So um, yeah, I've been running those games for the last few years. You know, and uh, so Katie and I met
0: last about last year this time, and we were both uh, taking a class uh, and we were both trying to learn how to create online classes. And one of the activities that they had in the class was to do these breakout sessions where uh, I teach you about something in about a minute and you teach me something in about a minute. And you taught me about Dungeons & Dragons in a minute, and I was completely hooked. I don't know if you remember that little elevator speech about Dungeons and Dragons, but I didn't really know what it was about. Can you explain to our audience what in the heck is Dungeons and Dragons?
1: Yes. Yeah. I had forgotten about it completely until right now, and I can't believe that was already a year ago, but I think you're right. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's wild. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would say my quick elevator pitch with Dungeons and Dragons is that it is a collaborative storytelling based game. I mistakenly assumed that this was a game that required a lot of math knowledge or a lot of, I don't know, it it seemed to me like a game that wasn't for me at first as somebody who was not really like traditionally geeky growing up and was not very good at math. But really it is a theater kids game. It is a role-playing game where you are creating a character for yourself to play as you navigate some sort of adventurous world. That could be a very traditional fantasy world, kind of like Lord of the Rings, where you've got elves and orcs and all of this stuff. Or it could really be any other kind of setting that your group is interested in. But it's sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure novel that you are telling with your group on the spot, where you have one person who's sort of the lead storyteller who's setting up the story, and we call that person the dungeon master or the game master. And then you and your friends are all playing these different characters, deciding how you would react in that story. So you Mm -hmm. say what you'd like to do, and then you roll a die that tells you how well you succeed at the thing that you're trying to do. So there's an element of chance. You can't just say like, I slay the dragon in one swoop with my sword. There is, you know, you can come up with your plan and then there's an element of chance to it but it's mm-hmm. really just a framework for telling a cool story with friends.
0: Nice. Yeah. I've got my dice over there. I'm really tempted to go get yes. one and and roll one or something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so so part of the thing is, is that you set up the story and then you have your certain talents, strengths, and gifts, kind of mm-hmm. like what we have as humans. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then The dice is representative of that chance, like, well, we're going to want to go ahead with this plan, but there could be total chaos, right? There could be, oh, I just rolled a one. And so what do we do now? And we have to figure out what to do. And that is a lot
1: like life, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I I do feel like it's my obligation to tell you that there is a whole class that you could play in D&D. When, when you decide to play, you could be a chaos magic sorcerer who draws their energy from a sort of chaotic power where Ooh. whenever you try to cast your magic, you have to roll a die and something kind of random could happen that could be really amazing for you or really terrible?
0: You know, we have actually started a little group and I'm a tiefling uh, and uh, it's been working out for me so far, except for the fact that I've got three guys uh, that are playing, my husband and his two twin brothers, and they always send me in to do their dirty work for them. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, when is this going to stop? Oh. But uh, but yeah, if I'm, uh, yeah, we have to talk a little bit about that uh, yeah. that chaos. Thing, because yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So Dungeons and Dragons, for you who don't know about it, and that was Katie's elevator speech, is a lot a lot like life. And I must say, as we transition into talking about eating disorders, we face a lot of different monsters in the game of Dungeons and Dragons too. And what I would like to challenge you with is know your monster, know, know the beast that you are dealing with. And so the more you know about eating disorders, the more that you're going to be able to uh, challenge and, uh, I guess, inherently defeat them. I and mean, that's really the goal, right? Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, good. So you work primarily with OCD and there is, as you say, an overlap between OCD and eating disorders, especially when we start to talk about rituals and we talk about how food can become a ritual and we Uh only eat certain foods, we only eat them at certain times, we only eat them at uh, certain quantities. And uh, so there can be an exercising, physical activity, uh, body checking, All of that stuff is ritualistic and it helps us to feel safe in our worlds. And so if you can understand the connection between OCD and eating disorders and understand like, oh yeah, I get it. It's just a different ritual. Then maybe that could help you to feel uh, more comfortable treating eating disorders. Not like I'm trying to pressure you. I know you've got a lot of concerns (laughs) and we're going to get into them. Uh, So yeah, you hesitate to, to treat people Uh, who struggle with eating uh, food, body image, all that other stuff. I think the first fear was that I would be, or that you would be practicing outside of the scope of your own knowledge. Can you tell me a little bit more about that
1: fear for you? Absolutely. Yeah. I really worry about ethics, right, as I think all of us do in this field. And I feel like it was really drilled into us, you know, know your scope, know your lane, stay within your training. I'm very mindful of that. I tend to stick to things that I've had a lot of training in kind of post in a postgraduate way, kind of extra stuff past grad school. Mm -hmm. And this is an area where I feel that I was really underprepared in my graduate training. You know, we had our abnormal psychology class where we're going through the whole DSM, right? Every diagnosis chapter by chapter, and we're going through it all. And I swear, I think we spent about five minutes on eating disorders. I think the two things that really got short shrift were eating disorders and autism spectrum. Like both of these were just sort of areas where it was like, Here, here's another thing that you should know, here's the names of these diagnoses. And if you're interested in them, you will need to pursue outside training. Not told where that training is, not told what it is, but it's not here. And so we're going to move on to the next chapter of this book. So I, I, there was almost a message of like, this is, this is not for you at this level of training. Don't, don't attempt this. It is so true. I've talked with a
0: lot of graduate students at our local universities here in Olympia, and they've said the same thing, that the instructors in these programs are saying, refer out, you get an eating disorder client, refer out, refer out. So then what happens is specialists like me, we get flooded with people who are well? I even get flooded with people who already have clients, and they're saying this is this isn't this is too much for me, and mm-hmm. I can't handle it. They need a specialist, which is fine and great. Uh, but here's something I would propose to you because this happened to me a couple of years ago when I first got my first uh, transgender client, mm-hmm. and that is was completely out of the scope. And I had just attended a training saying it is actually. It is actually within your scope of practice, you just have to seek consultation. And yeah. it's actually because the person reached out to you, more ethical for you to say, I, I will disclose to you that I'm not a specialist in, in this area and that I can seek consultation. Yeah, And is that what you want? And that is a real ethical way to instead, because the client could feel abandoned, and yeah. I didn't want this client to feel abandoned. And I said, listen, I'm not a specialist in this area, but I can seek consultation if you want to see me. Because this person was attracted to me as far mm-hmm. as me being a counselor. But I said, hey, I'm not a specialist in this area. So that's what we did. And it worked out great. So I guess the lesson number one would be seek you can seek consultation. And I will tell you, and I'll put the links in the description below, there are a couple of free consultation groups that meet on Fridays. One's the first Friday of the month, and the second one is the second Friday of the month. And they're both uh, hosted by treatment facilities where you can go on Zoom and you can ask your questions or you can just listen in. Mm -hmm. There's consultation with people like me, plus, and we'll go into this a little bit more later, there's always, with an eating disorder, there's always the treatment team. There, you'll yeah. never be alone. There's always going to be a medical professional, maybe a psychiatric dietitian. There's always, you'll never be alone. And there's all kinds of educational opportunities available. In fact, I'm, I have an online class that I'm going to be promoting pretty soon for people just like you that are afraid to treat eating disorders. And I say, see how simple it is. <laughs> so, So there's the education piece. This is where you get the education.
1: Something that you're, I think a a perspective that you're giving that I had not really considered as the specialist, you know, we are being told refer out, refer out, refer out. You're absolutely right. And I'm even thinking about, we had students in my cohort in grad school who were really interested in eating disorders. This is what they wanted to do. They did want to specialize. And when it came time for internships and we were looking for our placements and they're putting us all in our agencies, we had students who were saying, I'm really interested in a placement in an eating disorder treatment center. I'm looking to work in a clinic they're seeking out that extra training, right? That experience. And often what we were told was, well, that's gonna be really hard to get. That's gonna be Mm. really difficult to get. We don't really have those connections. That's gonna be really competitive. And it's almost, it felt a little gatekeeper-y. And the sense that I got was that, there's not a lot of demand right well you've got to be really trained they must not really be looking that hard they can afford to be very choosy what i'm hearing from you is that you are slammed as a provider with with referrals that you can't help that there aren't enough people mm-hmm. who who are doing this given the demand
0: well and also the treatment facilities are slammed too so i you know i hadn't even thought of that gatekeepery sort of mentality mm-hmm. but you're probably right the Professors in these courses or these classes and your professors in grad school probably just aren't informed about all of the treatment facilities. Part of what I'm gonna offer in my class is a resource list of all of the facilities that I know and trust across, around uh, the US, ones that I've visited, ones that I've fostered relationships with. And uh, so, yeah, maybe uh, maybe our challenge is to reach out to the schools with more information about, hey, if you have some grad students who are interested in it, here are the places who offer internships. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that, Katie, I appreciate that. Well, so uh, I don't know if that helped you to feel a little bit better about it, but then the OCD connection, and then also the fact that there's education and consultation that you can uh, obtain uh hopefully that helps your fear what what is your fear level 0 to 10 0 meaning no fear 10 meaning like i'm panicking here it's about pretty the
1: high. possibility. Okay. it's pretty high i would i would say you know 9 9 9.5 mm. like i'm up i'm up there you know it is it is a it is, historically has been kind of one of those flashing red light situations for me when i encounter somebody with disordered eating mm-hmm. i think also because in addition to not having a lot of education in school and kind of getting that message that like, "Mm, maybe this isn't for you, maybe this isn't a road to go down. The only thing that really was drilled into us, which I know to be true, is how dangerous it can be to have an untreated eating disorder. You know, we were quizzed on what's the mental health diagnosis that has the highest mortality rate and everybody's throwing out, you know, a lot of the, you know, the kind of, what we think of as serious and persistent mental health issues. They're tossing out these names and our professor's like, no, it's not this, it's not this. And we get to the end and they said, it's it's anorexia. That has mm-hmm. our highest mortality rate. And the eating disorders as a whole can be yeah. very dangerous because of the extreme things that are happening physically to your body. And that for me, I'm also like, ah, you know, do no harm, right? First, do no harm. I don't wanna harm a client inadvertently mm-hmm. through my lack of knowledge. I do think it's helpful to keep in mind that like, responsible treatment involves a team of people, that it wouldn't just be me sitting in my office saying, well, here's what I think you should do. You're consulting, and you're ensuring that this person is connected with other people looking at this from other perspectives.
0: And it's so interesting that you say, I don't want to do the harm, because what's happening with an eating disorder is they're harming themselves. Uh It is a method of self-harm, as you probably understand. And most eating disorder deaths do not uh, occur because of malnutrition. Most of them, they occur through suicide. Mm. And- yeah, and if you do the research and actually know what uh, what kills people with anorexia, is it's actually not malnutrition. It's, it ends up being suicide. And the brain being the first thing to go. Because uh, when starvation hits, uh, it actually, atta- it actually uh, attacks the organs that are non-essential, and the brain is the very first thing that goes. So it tries to preserve the heart. And it tries to preserve, you know, all the essential organs right here in your core. Uh, but the, the brain is what goes. And then what happens is that the thinking goes really wild. And then that's when suicide happens. So um, I don't know if that even reassures you at all. But it's um, what happens is before then what you would probably need to do is... You, you know, you would know in your gut that it's beyond your scope. And then you yeah. have to refer up to a higher level of care, which again, you'd need that list of treatment facilities and you yeah. need those resources to help, help your client uh, with, with that. Yeah. But you're right about the mortality rate. So that's pretty
1: scary for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think... Shedding light on maybe the mechanisms of like why it's so high is helpful to me because that wasn't really conveyed to us. But I do know that even if there is a large component of it that's suicide like it is, there are things that you need to have somebody monitoring. Right. Like a, you need mm-hmm. to have if, if you've got a client coming with with most eating disorders, you need to have a doctor who's really following closely.
0: Right. We vitals blood pressure uh-huh. um, and we we try not to make a huge emphasis on on weight but if uh-huh. there's a large amount of weight lost uh, in in it makes their organs start to shut down if it affects yeah. their major life domains let me see if i have my visual of the life domains palm tree yeah i do here we'll just put it up on screen here it's yeah. um it is uh-huh. so yeah isn't that great my life domains so if anything uh, regarding food and eating is affecting your major life domains in a major way, then it's a really big red flag uh, to be able to say, we need a higher level of care. You can assess for a higher level of care. You can consult to see if, is this appropriate for outpatient or is this something that uh, can be handled uh, or needs to be uh, handled at a higher level of care? So yeah. uh, you I think The bottom line to the whole, I'm afraid of the mortality rate is, is yeah, it's true. And now we know what it is. It's it's related to self-harm in the end Uh uh, and not necessarily starvation because we're gonna get the person the help that they need to get nourished uh, because uh, this typically happens is, even if a person passes out or if a person um, has some sort of electrolyte imbalance and something happens, uh, and their heart is beating really slowly, they're going to take them into the hospital, they're going to stabilize them met- medically. And then what's going to happen is they're going to refer them out to somebody who can assess them, which is going to probably be a treatment facility. They're probably not, the really critical cases are not going to be coming your way, Katie, I don't think mm-hmm. so. The, yeah. Your maybe, uh, your maybe uh, most common is going to be disordered eating behaviors that don't typically fit within that uh, that realm of the DSM diagnosis, people who who just has have struggles with food, eating, and body image. So yeah. I don't know if that lowers your 9.5 to a nine, but uh, I don't know if I did such a great job on that question. I think no, it kind of scared I might you
1: more. No, <laughs> yeah, no, no. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's another image that maybe those of us who are not in the the ED community, like maybe that's a misconception we have is like, the cases I imagine coming in are probably cases where realistically anybody in an outpatient would need to be referring to inpatient, right? That it's not that you're dealing with people who are at imminent risk right now, really in a precarious situation. Like that is an inpatient level. Mm-hmm. It is it is probably more, especially with the age group that I work with, pe- mm-hmm. people whose eating may not, their, their symptoms may not exactly line up with the DSM, but we see that they're on this path toward a relationship with food that's not productive and healthy for them
0: right right and uh, yeah. so when you when you see somebody who is on the on the end of the spectrum where they need a higher level of care and outpatient isn't appropriate you'll see the frequency and intensity of the symptoms uh-huh. uh, be present right uh-huh. and so in the if a person contacts you and you talk to them even if you talk to them once and they tell you, it's happening every day, it's happening at this kind of intensity, then you know and I think your gut will tell you that this this is probably something that you need to be assessed at a higher level of care Uh, call Center for Discovery. Call the Emily Program. Call Renfrew. I think in the on the East Coast, there's Rogers, there's um, Laureate. there's all kinds of treatment facilities that yeah. do these free consultations. And when you when you get the the um, evaluation, let's talk about that and see. And then what you would need to do as a if you agreed to take something on like this is try to help them to get motivated to get the level of care that they need. I like to think of it like, all right, so if you have cancer, you're not gonna go to your general practitioner and hope to get better. You're gonna need to get your cancer treatment. And when you're better, then you can come back and we can resume our normal visits. And Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people love that analogy because of course I wouldn't be going to my doc on the block for cancer treatment, right? I'd need to have somebody that could actually treat the cancer. So. If they really want to get better, and that's what I usually say is, if you really want to get better, this is the level of care you need. And if you ever have any problem assessing level of care, you can always consult with somebody like me or those consultation groups that I'll list in the description below. So there you go. That is super helpful. Yeah. Thank you for that. The fear of unintentional causing harm to a client is really, I think, one of the biggest concerns of
1: most therapists, right? We don't want to cause harm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really I think that's sort of a, a a core a core part of who most of us are is like the 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 yeah. bar is I at least can't you know <laughs> leave leave this worse than I found it, right? I don't want to be intentionally or unintentionally hurting people who are coming and looking for help.
0: Right, and then when when people like, oh, so say you did, and this has happened to me, say you did have somebody and you're like, oh no, I don't want to be unintentionally hurting a person. So you call me up and said, please, please help me out with this. I would say, let's consult about it. We can have an action plan and I can be with you every step of the way. And that is really super helpful. Some people are unwilling to do that anyway. yeah They're unwilling, they just say no. And and I like to, to say to therapists, trust your gut. If you're saying no, then yeah, you do need to refer out because Mm -hmm. your body is saying no, you you need to listen to your body. But if you think there's a chance that you might wanna learn and help and you can get consultation, kind of like my trans client that I was talking about, Mm -hmm. I I did wanna learn more and I did wanna grow. And this person really resonated with with me as a person and liked my music, liked my website, liked everything. you know. Uh, And so I felt that I owed it to them to be at least willing but of course, full disclosure. I'm not a specialist in this area. I will get consultation as I can, and if you do need a higher level of care, there is other places that I can refer you to. Just know that I'm not going to leave you, because a lot of uh, clients now are just kind of been left by the wayside, and they aren't getting any help at all. So anyway, I don't mean to. I don't don't mean to pressure you. You've got a pretty busy life as it is, right?
1: That, that is true. That is true. <laughs> but I I think. It is, it is good for me to know that there are systems in place for these these people who may not need that higher level of care, that there's, there's maybe a gray area here or a middle ground where I can responsibly mm-hmm. help people who are having some of these traits without feeling like I have to jump into the deep end and do something that I'm really not qualified to do. Because I think there are plenty of folks that fall in that mm-hmm. gray zone where I'm not equipped to help them right now, but I could be without increasing a lot of risk um, yeah. and you're right that that relationship is so important right that if you've already had a connection with somebody and they're pushing you on to the next that's really hard it is. It is. And so
0: I say, it's always better to instead of um, saying you need to go see a specialist, if you can, if you're willing to do it, and if you're you're saying, okay, I think I can learn this, uh, then then it's so much better to consult because that person's going to have to develop a brand new relationship yeah. with the specialist, and it's just going to be so much more effective. And and also when you're you're modeling to that client that. I care enough about you to get consultation to try and help you more because I've disclosed to you that this is not my area of expertise, but I'll do whatever I can to try and help you. And that is ethical practice for sure. Well, the last thing, and I'm really curious about this, the very last fear that I'm seeing that you've listed here. Uh, is a sense of pressure or perceived pressure from the therapist community that treating eating disorders requires extensive, uh, extensive training. Like you have to be a certified eating disorder specialist, such as I am, or even a supervisor. It's interesting that maybe there's that perception out there that we're a little snobby in our eating disorder community. (laughs) uh, I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know if this is the the vibe that's really being put out there or if it's simply my own projected anxiety that this is how I have taken it. Right. So no shade to our many eating disorder therapists. who so I know are <laughs> out there doing the Lord's work. But I, I have gotten that sense of like, you know, everybody speaks of, of eating disorder treatment with that caveat of you need the training, you need the training, you need the training. Right. That there is it is a very niched field. And I think that people are understandably very protective of their clients because Mm -hmm. these are people who have been through a lot. And Mm -hmm. I think the sense that I have gotten is like, well, if if you did decide that you wanted to start reaching out to this population, this is not something that you can read a book on or just take a quick training on or something like that. This is going to be a whole process of credentialing and a ton of work. So to me, I'm like, well, there's gonna be this huge mountain. It's this huge barrier to entry. I'm right Mm -hmm. at the bottom of it. I might as well not start just because I don't have the time or the energy to take on another whole credentialing process.
0: That is so helpful for me just to know from that uh, perspective of a, a therapist who may be just really discouraged because of this mountain you have to climb. I think the thing that I'm trying to convey with my four, there's a series of four classes and they're about an hour long. The last one is only about maybe a half hour or 45 minutes, so they're not that long at all, is that you can learn the basics. And also, the the main thing is, you need to know where to get help if you need it. Mm -hmm. And in the course, it will actually uh, talk talk about that. And I'm not saying that you don't need extensive training, absolutely, but I am saying that people can help people with disordered eating behaviors at the very least, and eating disorders, if you have the knowledge, just maybe put in four hours of time, and then continue to grow on that. And no, you don't need to be certified. I know it's probably the certification people are saying, "Yes, you do. Yes, you do." But uh, you know, it was extensive, and it was exhausting, and it still is because I have to continue to do the education and stuff by, behind it. Uh, but it is—it is so um, so much that. Every therapist learns how to treat behaviors, mm-hmm. how to treat emotions and how to be with people, how to know people and to know pain. And every therapist can do that. And you just need to know a little bit extra things about eating disorders and then learn along the way and consult and have a treatment team. I know I'm making it sound really easy, um, but I am I, I'm telling you, it is not as complicated as your professors out there are telling you it is.
1: I, I am sold on the course man. I think it sounds it sounds great, and I love the distinction that you're you're continuing to make of this like spectrum, right? The spectrum of of acuity or of severity, right? Where I think all of us, regardless of what our niche is, we're gonna encounter people who have some level of disordered eating. And if it's this very binary, either I have all of the training in the world or I have none. We're just not serving those people well when they show up. Even if the decision is, I'm going to refer this person to a higher level of care, or I'm going to refer them to a specialist, there's a window of time where they are with you and you are that point of contact. Mm -hmm. And it almost sounds like a triage process that you're setting up of like, how do I accurately assess this right without Mm -hmm. panicking? How do I determine what level of care is appropriate? How do I care for them in the meantime while we find them that next step? What can I work on here responsibly? Mm-hmm. what can I like there's a whole oh, yeah. triage process that people fall through and it may be at the end that it's a referral out but at least you have a, a systematized way of reaching mm-hmm. that conclusion as opposed to just throwing your hands up in the air and saying I heard something about food so <laughs> you've got to you got to go referral right on
0: yeah you just described my whole course you probably have heard it. me describe it. Before. That's exactly what I do through the through the um, who walks in the door assessment treatment, how to treat, and then there's a guidebook that I have created that actually it's a PDF file that you can go through and read about it as well. So it's not just a listen to course. It gives you an actual guidebook for uh, treating eating disorders with a huge reference list. Huge resource list including books, websites, consultation groups, all the treatment centers. And um, I just, um, I can't say enough about my own course. Oh my gosh, here I am. I have you as my guest. I want you to talk a little bit about you and your, your th- first off, I'm going to put your website up on the screen here. Let's, enough about me already. Okay. Uh, so this is Katie Katie Lear, and we're gonna take a little trip to her website right now. Cool. And I'm gonna go ahead and share the screen. Is there anything you wanna say about your your practice at all? And I've, I know you t- talked about OCD and treating tweens. Yeah, um, yeah I think this I w- is the, the website here, right? Yeah, This is the front page.
1: Yeah, that's our. That's my um. that's my course page. Oh, but okay. that is also that is also a thing that I am working on. It's not I am revamping my course right now. I do have a coping skills course available called Worry-Free Tweens, and it is a pre-recorded course. That's just that sort of all of the bread and butter coping skills that I love to teach tweens with anxiety. It's often like what happens sort of in those first three sessions with most folks who come in. During the pandemic, when there was this huge demand for therapy, I thought, man, if I could just get that stuff out to people now while they're waiting for therapy on a wait list, while they're trying to find somebody, if they want something to try at home first, sometimes these coping skills are enough. And sometimes you need more, right, more support. But I think for virtually any child with anxiety, this is a good place to start. So I do have that online course that's available anywhere, right? Um regardless of whether you're in a state where I'm licensed, it's an educational course. Oh, great. Um, Yeah, I also have a book that was published in July this year. And in sort of an exciting turn of events, it was um, reviewed in the New York Times last week. So that was sort of a fun moment uh, in in my life to see my, my little name. Uh, in print. Um, I know. Um, I think yeah. I can bring that up. I think yeah. I can bring it up.
0: I'm so proud of you. I was I oh, saw this you. and I'm like, oh, this is so cool. I mean,
1: I yeah, Simon and
0: Schuster, like who wouldn't be proud They're of? They're real
1: people. It's like a real <laughs> book. Yeah. Um, I know. tell us about your book. Well, it's kind of a funny, you know, we've talked so much about play and D D and all of these sort of like lighthearted topics, and it's sometimes a funny segue, but it it is like a pretty real one into Mm -hmm. what this book is about, which is an activity book for caregivers and grieving children. This is an activity book for parents and their kids to work through and process feelings of grief using play, creative arts, um, kind of hands-on ways of expressing grief feelings without having to rely so much on language and words. So it's for kids ages five to 11. Um, And it's a book that is designed to be used kind of in any sequence, like there's activities categorized by emotion and by theme, but they don't have to be done in a linear way. Um, And these are just things that parents can do at home that are pretty low budget accessible materials that you can use to help children start to talk about and get feelings out related to grief.
0: Yeah. And it's so important. And that's just such a tender age. When you said those ages, I yeah. was thinking about a, I think I was in the third grade and some, uh, one of my classmates lost her mother and mm-hmm. I just couldn't even imagine. I, yeah, I think I was eight and uh, I just couldn't imagine. And so something like that would have been really, really super helpful for, for her and her family, I think.
1: I think now that I'm like, Thinking about it, I do think there's some parallel too around the way we all think about grief and the way that therapists tend to think about eating disorders, which is Mm. there's a huge fear that even I had in writing the book of like, if I say something wrong or do something wrong, can I really cause harm here? These children are so vulnerable. Grieving people are so vulnerable. If I say the wrong thing, will I have messed things up so badly? I might as well just say nothing. Maybe I should hold back what I'm going to say for fear of hurting others. And I think... For parents and for those of us who have grieving kids in our lives, there's that pressure of having the perfect words, the perfect thing to say, that's gonna somehow make this pain more bearable. And I I think, The biggest mistake is to say nothing, right? The biggest mistake is to to not talk about it or to say, well, this child seems like they're doing okay on the surface, so I'm just gonna not mess it up and not bring anything up, right? It's a hard subject to broach, but kids need us as adults to be the role models in in showing them that it's okay to talk about people who've died. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to remember them, Mm -hmm. even if those memories aren't always, you know, sunshine and rainbows and, and super happy. I just
0: I think that's the the takeaway quote is the 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 thing the the worst thing that you can say is to say nothing right yeah
1: yeah here yeah. I am writing this whole book and then I'm like what if I said nothing about eating disorders and just pretended they weren't there you really <laughs> opened that up for me yeah
0: yeah yeah I do want to go ahead and and share the I think it was the uh, young dragon slayers okay. here. And we want you to tell us a little bit about this group. Looks so freaking cool. Oh. And I love your your logo here. Young Dragon Slayers with yes. the dragon and the, the 20-sided dice and yes. everything. Tell us about this.
1: Yeah, this is sort of my pandemic baby that has now grown to sort of a pandemic toddler, right? During the worst of, of the pandemic when we were all really, really isolated at home I just had all of these kids coming in who were so depressed and so isolated and so cut off from everything that had brought their life meaning before school shut down and they were just at home all day and i was thinking man i wish i could just get these kids together to play D. Mm-hmm. like i it, this has been such a lifeline for me in the pandemic it has been so healing for me i was sort of aware that D was being used therapeutically and i figured you know what i'm going to start one group right i'm going to start one group it'll be six weeks long we're going to get these people together to play that group is still playing. It's been two years. We've watched these kids grow up, right? Like these middle schoolers are now high schoolers and they're still taking this commitment to each other really seriously. And we've mm-hmm. we've now spun off this sister company that is less therapeutic and more focused on social emotional growth and just positive experiences with peers. It's like a friendship building group. Mm-hmm. So it's open to kids all over the U.S. We've had Canadian players join us as well. And we now have three DMs running eight groups a week for oh kids God. ages 11 to 15. So we've got younger groups and older groups. And these are just safe, child-friendly, accessible spaces for kids to try out DD online. So if you're not ready to send your child out into the internet alone to try to mm-hmm. find people to play with, we always have adults on these calls. Adults are always facilitating the games. And we create the gaming content with some of our kind of social emotional goals in mind of how do we encourage altruistic behavior? How do we encourage cohesion and bonding? How do we give people opportunities to practice these social skills in game? Um, and it's just been the most fun. And I, it's the hardest I laughed during my week and oh. we've really just been been loving it.
0: Oh, my goodness. National Geographic, even. Yes. What's
1: that about? They did, a, they did an article on D&D therapy and approached me for, uh, for a quote. So there we, hey, there we you were. You just Walk on with your bad
0: self. This is so cool. And yeah, and it really does seem like it's a fun, like, join us. And then it seems like it's really... So there's a uh, friendship building games and games for groups. So there's different sort of options in there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We've got kind of games. If you're like, if you've got a solo kid or a solo tween that's like, I know I want to play, I haven't found my people to play with, I'm trying to find social activities, we can pair you with other kids. But we also will sometimes get families who want to play a game together or a pre existing group of friends that is trying to find a way to connect. So if you bring your own group, we can find you a facilitator if you're looking to be hooked up with a group. We can we can make that happen as well. Awesome.
0: Well, I really appreciated that. Anything else? Any other products or services that you want uh, to offer or talk about right now, Katie? Those
1: are mm-hmm. those are really the big the big two. I would say is the the book and the the D and D games, which are sort of regardless of where you're listening from, mm-hmm. things that that most people can can participate in. Um, Great. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, and so that the D and D group is uh, at the youngdragonslayers.com. dot Katie's website is uh, www.katyleer.com, and that will have several pages uh, about her, about her practice. Katie, you're licensed to practice in North Carolina, but I don't know if you do coaching and you can do any kind of work outside of North Carolina.
1: I can work outside of North Carolina. I don't offer coaching at this time, but I'm licensed mm-hmm. in New York and Florida as well for telehealth. So if you are living in one of those two states and you're looking for online therapy for your tweenaged child, I I do have that available.
0: So cool. So cool. I really appreciate having you on today. And I really, uh, I really think I learned a lot. And hopefully you did too. What's your level now? Zero to 10 eating disorders, disordered eating behaviors, where do you think you are now?
1: I'm going to put it like a five with the caveat that I would want the class or I would want the community, but it's, it's, I, you have lowered my level of freak out substantially, <laughs> substantially around eating disorders. And I'm so excited that your class is out there. I think it's so needed. Um, yeah.
0: Well, we're, yeah. we're in beta testing right now. Yeah. So, uh, and then the guidebook is still being developed as we speak. So it's not, but it's, it's going to be out there knowing the beast that you are up against right, mm-hmm. just like Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. Know the beast,
1: right? We're creating your manual, right? You're going to yeah. learn. You're going to learn all mm-hmm. the stats. I think it's fantastic that you're doing this. I can't wait for it to be out in the world. Um, yeah. yeah,
0: and you you have uh, online classes too. You have your Dragon Slayers, and you've got uh, some things that you're developing at yeah. this time as well. So yeah. uh, let's let's keep in touch. One of the things I had in mind. Now I'm just going to propose this to you while we're on this this uh, call be. here. Yeah. Is you had an interest in my knowledge of what I what I taught you in that one minute? Yes, which was lucid dreaming. Yes,
1: right? yes.
0: I would love to do a like a live stream. Uh, for people. If you are, if you're okay with that, I know already maybe... into it Yes, <laughs> because um, my channel needs more live streams and I would love to do a live stream with you where we talk about Dungeons and Dragons and we have some effects kind of like what we had on this show. And, uh, and then I talk about lucid dreaming and all the things that you can learn about lucid dreaming. So we teach the audience about these two things. Maybe they can even be combined, right?
1: Dude, okay. I, <laughs> and I'm here for it. This sounds like fun. I am dead. You tell yeah. me when I will, All I will right. show up at my little computer and we will lucid dream together. I'm yeah. Into- well,
0: oh yeah. That That's <laughs> really super cool. And I can lucid dream that I'm what, a chaos wizard or something like that. Yeah. that so cool. Yeah. All right. We'll stick around after afterwards, but I just want to really, once again, uh, thank you so much, Katie, for being on Calming the Chaos today. It's been a hoot. It
1: has been <laughs> so wonderful. Good.
0: Thank you for listening to Calming the Chaos Podcast. If the information in this podcast has been helpful, please consider subscribing and share it with your friends. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Music, Spotify, and on YouTube. You can also go to our podcast website at www.comingthechaospodcast.com, where you can listen to all Calming the Chaos Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to sharing my next podcast episode with you. In the meantime, take care.